You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And for this week's interview, I'm talking with Kevin Bethune, founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi. So my name is Kevin Bethune. I'm the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life. And our mission really is to to derive and really address holistic experience opportunities to figure out ways that we can unlock human potential and really create holistic and empathic experiences that truly unlock human potential, increase human connection, and just make our experiences more human in general. Nice. How are you feeling so far about this new year? Happy New Year, by the way. <laughs> thank you. And you as well. And, and thank you for the honor of being on Revision Path. For, for I guess, as we close out 2020 and head into 2021, I am, I guess I have feelings of, of gratitude, just notions that a lot of us have been through a lot. I mean, there's been loss of life, loss of jobs, economic volatility, concerns over health and wellness. To come out the other side of it, we, we have to sort of just pause and just express gratitude for that. And, you know, for anyone that's coping with loss through this year, I, you know, I definitely, my heart goes out to each and every one sort of coping and facing any sense of loss. So I, I guess it's just a feeling of, of gratitude for that and for knowing that my you know, family is walking through this year whole and, and entering the new year with a sense of hope. That's, that's where my head is right now, just focusing on the important things. Now, I don't want to dwell you know, too much on the pandemic because we're still in it and everything, but I'm glad that you mentioned gratitude because, you know, like you said, in the conversation we had before, there's just been so much that's happened. And, you know, we as designers, as creatives, you know, and even you and I and probably others listening as black people, like there's been so much that we've had to process on so many different planes as we go through this year. It's not just economic. It's not just jobs. It's, you know, our rights in in many cases, you know, so mm-hmm. the fact that we've been we've managed to come out on the other end of it relatively unscathed hopefully is a blessing so i totally empathize with that absolutely let's talk about the work that you're doing now your business dreams design and life what inspired you to kind of create your own studio it's funny my career has been largely multidisciplinary and primarily through large organizations and it was really the last chapter where we a small team of us got to create a multidisciplinary runway uh, of sorts. We, we created very much what we would call, looking back, an incubator that was tasked with helping large organizations create startup opportunities that wouldn't necessarily distract those large companies from their core focus, their core business, but would allow us to ring fence multidisciplinary teams to really run as fast as possible against opportunities that we uncovered in the marketplace and and sort of adopted a lean startup approach to, to building businesses and spinning them out. And, and some businesses would sink or swim, but that was just sort of par for the course. And we ended up, that team, we ended up getting acquired 
by the Boston Consulting Group. And, and we were sort of nurtured as a wholly owned subsidiary called BCG Digital Ventures. And that runway just helped me find my footing as a, as a creative leader in that fold to figure out how to serve those multidisciplinary teams, to lead the design function within those teams. And while that was all fine and good and very grateful to BCG for investing in us, as a just a, a creative person, there were certain topics that I found myself you know, leaning in on more. And also outside of the day job, I had startup friends up and down the West Coast that would actually reach out personally and say, hey, you know, I have this, this industrial design of this or I have this strategic design question on that. Can you actually help me out? It's aiming at this sweet spot of, of a human-centered opportunity. And can you help me unpack it? Can you help work on this with me? And, and sure enough, those asks started increasing in frequency. And instead of being all things to all industries on the BCG platform, I saw that there was enough interest to entertain a few topical areas that, that matched my unique individual set of experiences and my interests and, and the things that I per- perhaps cared more about. And so I said, you know what, with enough evidence of those sort of side investigations, I think there's enough here to plant my own flag and stand on my own two feet. Nice. Has business sort of changed since you started your studio? Like over, of course, the way that just this year has went, have you found there's been a shift in some sort of way? Yes, weirdly enough, appreciate you asking. So when <laughs> when I stepped away from BCG, I was on my own. No one heard of the name Dreams Design and Life. You know, it was, it was everything was new. So you know, empty inbox, a new phone number, phones not ringing. You know, just sort of the deafening quiet of starting anything new. And surely enough, friends of friends would introduce me to startups that had needs, and so that was sort of the first source of of work. But as we entered the pandemic year. Sure enough, you know, the network keeps talking about, you know, perhaps the value that your your business or you as an individual are creating. And, you know, the referral starts, you know, seeding themselves across the network. And sure enough, what was surprising is that larger organizations started reaching out. Old friends that I used to work with 10, 15 years prior would say, hey, you know, I noticed you've been doing this and creating value for these startups. Can you help? Perhaps can you help my innovation department? And they're part of a big multinational corporation. Or can you help my brand department? Or can you help my design department with this or that question? And and then with the volatility of the pandemic and and the especially with the light of of George Floyd, it naturally I think a lot of us started engaging in conversation and ultimately very public conversation around some of these important talking points. And because unfortunately it took jarring acts of of brutality to make everyone sort of question and sort of achieve a heightened sense of awareness around where do some of these issues occur and perhaps in a more covert nature, especially in places where we spend a lot of time, which is, you know, institutions and enterprises. So a lot of big questions were starting to percolate and, you know, being a part of those more public conversations regarding those hot topics, all of a sudden the large companies start coming in with more and more interest around sort of the interconnections between diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as how that manifests to have direct implications to any design or innovation opportunities that you know these organizations are thinking about. It's really interesting how, I don't even know if interesting is the right way. That's that's a placeholder word for something, that, that for a word that I can't grasp at the moment. But the way that companies glommed on to sort of the immediacy of this very sort of presence 
social justice, civil rights sort of moment is, to me, really gross. The reason I say that is because at the time that this was happening with these, you know, with the protests and companies are like, yeah, we're now going to celebrate Juneteenth and that's a paid holiday. Well, who is that really benefiting? But as this, you know, sort of thing was going on and companies are like, oh, well, we need to reach out to black voices and we need to uplift people and things like that. It's like, where have you been this whole time that this has been going on? I mean, I guess in a way we should be somewhat grateful that because the pandemic had caused so many people to be locked down, that they were forced to see these things happen and not have the luxury to be distracted by travel or entertainment or sports or things like that. As this was sort of happening, I I know it was like around, you know, like May, June, et cetera. I was also looking at a lot of old issues of Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine, honestly, because I saw some meme on Twitter about like, post the cover from your like month of birth or or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'll play along. Why not? Uh, But as I started actually going through the archives, which are largely on Google Books, like looking at past issues and things like that, it got me to thinking, well, what about other big social issues that have happened in this country? And and like, what has the conversation been around that? And how have companies and businesses and brands sort of responded to that? And mainly I looked at when Dr. King was assassinated and it was astonishing how some of the very same types of empty tokens that we see in terms of like black squares over ads or things like that were happening in the sixties and they're still going on now. And the to me, the gesture is just as empty, like, okay, it's a black square. What does that mean? You know, I think now certainly companies are starting to put, Some companies, I should say, are putting money behind it and actually like making this a thing and not just a banner that they put on the top of their website for two weeks and then take off, you know. But it it, to me, it just feels gross how they sort of glommed onto this. And I got asked by so many people, like, is this a shift? Is this a change? And what does this mean now for for black creatives? And I'm like, time will tell. You know, we'll see if y'all are still beating this drum in the fall and in the winter, because right now it's just too early to tell. But I also, to that end, on the flip side, I know a lot of people that, you know, sort of really came up off of this moment. Black people, Black creatives, you know, because they're now being seen and sought out in a way that maybe they had been overlooked before, this has actually been a really good time for them. So it's it's a bittersweet kind of moment, I think. I'm with you. Definitely a lot of mixed feelings through, especially the summer months, uh, looking at a lot of enterprise response and and it's funny, I think I love the exercise that you took to look back at the old media to see, you know, what, what were some of those trends and and to see the similarities is, is quite, you know, a powerful connection point. But I, I think as we find ourselves in the present and the level of how much, I guess, computation has connected us all together in such a hyper connected way, you know, not just across the nation, across the world, that I think in, in some respects, a lot of these brands can't hide anymore. Uh, again, having personal experience navigating some of these large multinationals, you can post a black square, but if I go on Twitter and within like a few minutes, I, I can get a pulse of how your employees feel about your culture, about your inner inner workings. And then my, myself, even in particular, even myself in particular, I, I remember not being listened to, not being appreciated, feeling 
winds of exclusion, uh, the microaggressions, just in navigating corporate America, and then seeing the same, you know, type of enterprises espouse these platitudes, it makes you feel ill remembering the reality versus the message. And but in a good way, I think, you know, brands can't hide. I think it's easy for us to understand like what's happening inside these cultures. The walls are, thanks to digital, are, are more transparent. We, we will find out like how your culture is, how people perceive it, view it, experience it. And I think we're dealing with a much more, I guess, savvier consumer, a consumer, especially the younger generations that are looking behind the brand message to say, are you for real? What receipts are your employees holding up? Are your practices sustainable? Are you do you actually care about the demographic underserved demographics that are rising up in influence and 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 purchasing power? Are, are you respectful? Like all those things are being brought to the light. And also, I mean, you know, aside from the sort of savvy consumer, people are talking. So like employees at other companies are talking to people across their, you know, sort of respective industry about how this is happening. So there's also that comparison that's going on. Well, if that's what's happening here, then what's happening over there? You know, like <laughs> more people, and this is interesting, especially because so many people have been out of work and they're going, you know, now to work for these companies that also have to adjust, not just to this new hyper-aware social climate, but also now remote work. <laughs> people that are applying for jobs now are coming with, I don't know, a lot more things that they need besides just a paycheck. Like, am I going to feel safe here as a person of color or as a marginalized person, you know? And also, what's that remote work situation going to look like? Because mm-hmm. I just know from my job search this summer, a lot of companies are like, oh, well, we're going to be back in the office in three months. Oh, we'll be back <laughs> in 2021. So any sort of remote kind of setup they had, they kind of just put a time limit on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've had friends who just accepted new positions where some some companies basically say, yeah, we're going to you know open in 2022, so you, you should move now and be mm-hmm. close. Yeah. I was getting that a lot, too, where they, they're doing remote work, but only if the office, only if you live in the same city as the office. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, well, do you plan on moving here? Like, no, it's, it's remote. I'm going to stay where I'm at, and you're going to stay where you're at, and we're going to work together. So... <laughs> I think companies are still trying to trying to sort of figure all that out, which God bless them on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, now, your focus is largely on on strategic design, but also industrial design, and as you put it on the Dreams Design and Life website, new ecologies. When you're like starting out with a new project, tell me like what does that process look like? It's funny that the assumptions that I had of how that process would start when I started the company <laughs> are largely different than what's actually happening. So, you know, when I first started, I was so overly fixated on making sure my my sales deck and all the all the things were in place to, you know, deliver the articulation of like what the what the think tank represents. But honestly, what what played out is the network, again with gratitude, the network through the referrals. I was thankful to have been invited into rooms with whether it be startup founders or the heads of of departments of particular functions in large corporates. And I find myself time and time again, just being, and this is pre-pandemic speak, but being put in the room with them with a fresh slate whiteboard. And the typical process is, you know, just listening 
and synthesizing like the realities of what that business is going through. Like, what are they most proud of? What keeps them up at night? What feelings do they have about their audiences? And are there audiences that they've, they've been hoping to reach but haven't yet achieved any resonance? And we have conversations around like just the current state of things. But then quickly, what I try to get them to do is think about their future, their future trajectory through what I call a, a slightly wider or more open aperture. And I really, in the process of just having that dialogue with them, I'm sort of educating them over, around the creative process. And I try to get them to imagine looking at their, their future trajectory, literally a looking glass, staring at the, the, the future time horizon and getting them to appreciate the value criteria of their audiences that they're serving or hoping to serve and getting them to see that it's more than just like the typical dialogue that they have around their marketing funnel because normal human beings don't operate <laughs> in market funnels like we live our lives. We have on-ramps and off-ramps, inflection points, the normal day in the life, week in the life, year in the life, life in the life type of experience. And there's all types of creative ways that we can bring the true realities to life and, and really dig in on what's missing in terms of gaps. So usually the gaps of understanding 9.9 .9 times out of 10 is that deeper latent stuff, the, the deeper substance that makes us human that people probably would have a hard time articulating if you were to ask them a, a direct question in a focus group. And usually it's, we have to like figure out a, an investigation approach that gives us more time and bandwidth with their audience, get on the ground with them, co-create with them, get in the weeds with them and see what unmet aspirations, what contradictions, what latent unmet needs that we can really crystallize and help those insights sort of percolate and reveal opportunities that the business can actually decide to act on or, or not, you know, and, and those kind of things are just super helpful to, to give us some initial convictions to rally around. And then, so audience is one thing as we look through the looking glass, another vantage point is just the paradigms of their industry and not just taking the present consensus of how their industry is supposed to function and behave as the status quo, like just taking that as a given. Like oh, why, right. why can't we actually dissect how like business is done at the most elementary level, at the foundational assumption level and really break down those first principles and question like, can we actually like rearrange this or can we take out the middleman here? Can we you know, ensure that we're getting any friction out of that sort of set of handoffs out of the way so that we can provide value to the people that need it faster and, and more efficiently and more with more resonance. And that's not enough. Like when we open the aperture, trying to get them to, to really look at the holistic plethora of, of trends and inspirations that we could bring into the conversation that maybe, you know, within their industry and their reality, but also things that are running adjacent and perhaps a bit outside of their office walls and bring in fresh inspirations and, and exemplars into that conversation. So it gives us enough basically um, fodder to have a, a creativity conversation to then imagine new ideas, new solutions, new new paths forward. That's sort of the strategic design piece and, and, and getting them to sort of look a bit more holistically around things rather than just thinking thinking business first or how do I fit this insight into my present business mechanics, because typically any new opportunity might have a, a, a greater chance of dying if we sort of think business first rather than future first. Yeah. Is it hard to convince 
businesses of that. I'm thinking back when I had my design studio, it seemed like that was always the first corner that the client wanted to cut was like any sort of dissection or further sort of glimpse into how they do business. They're like, no, 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 no. I just need you to do this. (laughs) That definitely reared its head a few times. And, you know, as a young business owner, I can't lie and say I wasn't tempted by, oh, you know, this could be actually, you know, media engagement that could actually, you know, keep the lights on, you know, for the next few months. I mean, we all have those temptations, but I think my career experience prior has shown me it's best to sort of interview them just as much as they're interviewing me and my company for the, you know, mutual synergies and fit. And there have been times where I've, I've had to walk away because it just didn't feel right in the initial collaboration to your point. Like they wanted an execution partner only. Like they already thought of the need and the opportunity. They just want, they, they want someone to hold accountable to get whatever sprint that they pre-hypothesized <laughs> to get that done. And they're not really interested in thought partnership. Whereas I gravitate to those early conversations where there's a clear avenue, a wide open highway for collaborating on the important issues to have the the latitude to question the paradigms that are at play. And then we will get to, you know, definitely pathways of execution, whether it be industrial design or deeper investigation or whatever it might be. But we feel good around like a shared collaborative partnership toward the things that matter the most. And then let's go deep on those things. That that feels good. And I, I've learned to sort of smell where, where that's happening versus not. And if, if it's not happening, if I'm not feeling it, then I'm happy to walk away because it's, you know, the opportunity cost of spending time on something that's transactional is going to kill the opportunities that I really need to be focused on. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, whenever you're working with a new client, it's sort of like there's a series of, of video games called Dungeon Crawlers. And they're like, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons type, or I'm trying to think of other games that are like this, Etrian Odyssey, etc. But there are these sorts of games where you're basically plopped into this scenario, and the only way that you really get through is that you make the map as you're like traversing through the terrain. Mm. And so it's different from a game like, say, The Legend of Zelda or something where you find a map and the whole dungeon's already mapped out for you. So you know where to go to get this chest or where the boss is or anything like that. You don't know what the pitfalls are in these other types of games because you have to make it while you're going through it and so if something happens at least you come back to the map that you had to say all right don't go here go here you know and i feel like that's very much what the strategic process is sort of like you're walking with the client because you're trying to uncover like you say these new ecologies these new strategies you're trying to uncover that with them and that can only be done together like you can't mm-hmm. really go in solo and just try to one shot it. You have to walk with the client. They have to sort of work with you in order to make the map together. To that end, are you do you find that there's like certain types of businesses or or even like businesses in certain sectors that are maybe more conducive to this type of work than others? I think startups have to think with you know, multiple hats. You know, if you're dealing with a small founding team. Everyone's wearing 10 to 20 hats in the first place. So I think there's a greater flexibility and appetite to want to sit around the table together, solve things cross-functionally. That's always perhaps an easier sell, if you will, to, to get that momentum going. But within larger enterprises, like I felt those blusters of you know the transactional requests, and I didn't feel like perhaps it's going to lead to anything substantial. 
But I do, especially this year, there is a growing concern that any notion of like true multidisciplinary collaboration focused on innovation, I think companies are realizing more and more that they actually have to treat that as a new normal and not just treat it as the exception to the rule. Like everyone talks about, oh yeah, multidisciplinary this, multidisciplinary that. But the larger the organization is, I find, when you get into under the hood, the amount of time that people actually spend collaborating cross-functionally is very few and far between. And, it, and I think people are realizing, enterprise leaders are realizing that they actually do need to commit more bandwidth and concerted focus around like the opportunities that are coming in their future over the horizon and not just fixate all the calories on the short term and, and the core business itself. Because the landscape, the market could move out from under their feet in a matter of months. And when this year has shown us that, no industry, no company is immune from disruption, even though I think that's an overused word. But people and their value criteria, their audience value criteria is shifting all the time. And to be flexible and fluid and to know that whatever you're working on in your core business, whatever products you're selling will have to mature. They will have to be replaced with you know, new products, new services, and ideally with more respectful performance around those new things that you're you know, injecting into the business, hopefully more profitable, more sustainable, more responsible, more just better all around for all stakeholders. Like those new things do have to come in. And in order to realize those new things that need to replace what's existing, you got to dedicate more time for this type of work. So I think that's why strategic design was a, an incredibly powerful differentiator that we cultivated inside of the BCG environment and seeing its impact on a lot of larger organizations in that, in that experience. And then to see it continue to be powerful, even as a small unknown entity as Dreams Design and Life is in its early, early trajectory. But the, 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 the impact that organizations feel when they get to experience it with us continues to just blow me away about how powerful the potential is. And, and to see large organizations lean in on the muscle is quite satisfying. I predicted that we're going to see more companies start to really look at strategic design, especially now that 2020 has really sort of fundamentally changed the way really a lot of industries now have to do business because of not being able to really do things in person. You know, it's amazing how technology has really stepped in. Like, who would have thought Zoom would have been the app of 2020, you know? I mean, <laughs> and that it ruled the roost over so many other competitors, I guess you could say, in their space. Like, really, this could have been Skype's whole year, and they just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, like, I mean, other things like WebEx or BlueJeans or GoToMeeting or whatever. But you started to see a lot of events that have moved into these virtual spaces and things like that. And I think companies now are starting to... They're, they're going to start looking at strategic design more to see how they can really innovate within this totally new space. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the, the whole game has changed in a lot of ways. No, absolutely. And I, I honestly think that it takes more than just saying that you, you know, you believe in the, the zeitgeist of design thinking and that you, you call yourself human centered as an organization. Yeah. You know, all those it, buzzwords. Yeah, you know, and I totally agree with the, the mindset of like, okay, human first, sure. But the way that it's being applied, I think it's still nebulous across most enterprises, especially the ones that I encounter. And I think strategic design, or whether you want to call it strategic innovation, it takes actual real human beings, real like roles 
real designers, real engineers, real business people and digital technologists, strategists working together to actually unlock these opportunities. And they, they need, a, I would argue, a more tactical set of approaches to put muscle, bandwidth, time, resources and focus in the areas to actually reveal these opportunities, because it's not just going to come from sound bites. Yeah. Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we've talked a lot about your work and, and what you're doing through your studio, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning. I want to know kind of the Kevin Bethune origin story. Tell me about where you grew up. So I was born in upstate New York, a little town called Newburgh, but I spent the majority of my childhood in the Downriver Detroit metropolitan area, a little town called Riverview. And essentially that was in the heart of the, the automotive industry. Most of the neighbors were engineers or business people working for the big car companies. But I was, I would say, curiously creative. I drew for hobby in that environment. But when it came when it came time for thinking about like where to go to college and what to study, notions of like art and design were sort of in the abstract. You know, coming from a, a middle class upbringing, you know, parents sacrificing so much for their kids. If we got the shot to go to college, and that was monumental in itself, it, it definitely did dictate you know choices that you would make as a young person. Like you know, for this level of sacrifice, there better been a, a a good job on the other side of that decision to go to college and the major that you picked. And for me, right, wrong, or indifferent, I think design and art were just a bit too much in the abstract for me to make that choice. And so looking at all the neighbors and the community that I, that I was surrounded by, and because my, my interest in drawing also intersected with math and science, engineering made more pragmatic sense. So, so that was the initial choice to study mechanical engineering because it embodied all those elements and ended up uh, going to Notre Dame, completed my, my degree. And as companies were coming to campus to recruit, many of the, the industries had a, a similar pitch around, well, you know, you'll come in, you'll understand our business. Maybe we'll put you on a factory floor for five to 10 years and you really understand our business. And then we'll let you do some of the hardcore engineering work on new product. And I thought it was a little bit of a cognitive disconnect because I loved learning about all the cool like simulations and laboratory testing procedures and the analysis, the classical hand calculations. I loved all of that as part of the engineering curriculum. But the thought of like waiting that long <laughs> to be able to do those things on new product was a little bit of a disappointing message, but one industry in particular had a different pitch and that was the nuclear power industry. They were facing what I would call a knowledge crisis of sorts and that they hadn't hired young people for the 10 to 15 years prior to me coming out of school. And all of a sudden this company Westinghouse Nuclear out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, emailed, you know, some of us and invited us to Pittsburgh to visit their headquarters and they were basically saying, hey, you know, we, we are really aggressively wanting to, to hire young talent. We want to show you the ropes because we have a generation of folks that designed a third of the world's nuclear operating fleet in the first place on the verge of retirement. And we're, we're concerned about this huge brain drain that's ahead of us. We needed to step in, get mentored by these amazing engineers and just help shore up our future. And so that was a wonderful wide open door as a young engineer to come into that environment and I learned a ton around product and, and working with high-performing teams in, in such mission-critical spaces that were nuclear power plants. Interesting. Nuclear. Hmm. <laughs> and, and so I'm guessing this is like right around like probably like turn of the century, right? Like 99, 2000, something like that? 
So yeah, it started in 98 and I was with them for five years, but it, it honestly felt like 10 because of the incredible projects that were a part of those five years of, of experience. What do you remember the most about working there? When you step into a nuclear facility um, and you, you may have driven past them on a certain highway drives where you'll see this gigantic concrete structure, like a big concrete dome, or you know, maybe there's a couple of these domes on a campus. But when you go inside, the first thing that you do is look up just by the sheer magnitude of like these machines that are several stories high and just tremendously like beyond comprehension and how all the inner workings sort of piece together and somehow we're able to produce energy from these gigantic things. And then when the, the plants actually open for refueling, you see the actual fuel assemblies being moved about underneath the water. You need the water for shielding from the harmful radiation, but you see this glow murkiness from the fuel <laughs> underneath the water and just the, the sheer power of, you're dealing with something that's just beyond worldly. <laughs> now, I'm glad that you said that because I kind of want to have you demystify a little bit, sort of, I guess, the concept of nuclear power. I'm not asking you to like give a, a treatise on it or anything, but like, <laughs> I grew up in the South and the only nuclear power plants I've seen have been on the Simpsons. And when I've heard about nuclear, you know, it's always been in a, almost in a, a wartime sort of aspect. Like we have nuclear warheads or I would play video games. And one of the, like I'd play Sim City, and one of the scenarios is a nuclear meltdown or something like that. Mm -hmm. So granted I've heard about it in these very disparate kind of ways, but it sounds like with what you're doing in Westinghouse, like nuclear power is kind of more common than we think it is. Yeah, depending on any part of the planet that you go, anywhere from 10 to 25% of the energy supply would come from nuclear power plants. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of them, hundreds of them operating across, and there's new ones being built. A lot of people don't know there's actually new power plants uh, being built um, heavily across Asia. But even in the US, there's been new plant construction back underway. And it's a technology that is just enormously powerful for its future energy producing potential. Of course, there's grave concerns around you know, safety and safeguards and, and what do you do with you know, spent radioactive fuel. But I think the more the industry works and leans forward into those opportunities, they will figure out safer, better, cheaper, faster, you know, more de easily deployable and safely deployable technologies that, you know, ideally are, are, are melt proof and that are safe for the public. That's my hope for the industry, having worked in it, that they continue to make it all those things. And now while you were, were at Westinghouse, you attended Carnegie Mellon to get your MBA. I'm curious because earlier you said, you know, working at Westinghouse for those five years, it kind of felt like 10. Was pursuing your MBA a byproduct of that, I don't know, that sort of phase of time that you felt like you needed to level up? Or was this sort of always kind of in your plans to do? No, it definitely wasn't in the initial plan. But I think through those five years, I felt like I just lacked business acumen to be a part of more strategic conversations as a technology professional. Uh, sometimes in engineering, you know, you can tend to plateau. Like if you're if you're great at, around a particular engineering competency, typically most companies want you to keep doing that <laughs> over and over again. And you know, even in when it comes to pay, like there's a plateauing of your sort of future potential if you just stick to that you know core subject matter expertise. So I, I felt like in dealing with 
the marketing department and wondering why the company was engaging in certain projects and not others and certain utilities, not others. That curiosity for wanting to know the business acumen around some of those strategic choices like that and, and feeling like I lack those things. And to your point, leveling up, like if, if I gain that acumen on top of my tech background, I just thought that more doorways could open for my career. And so I thought about part time, you know, going part time, but it was one program that my my girlfriend at the time, now wife, she found it. She was a grad student at Carnegie Mellon before I started. She found this program called the Consortium for Graduate Study and Management. And it was an initiative around increasing the numbers of underrepresented folks in business and executive circles. And so I ended up applying to the consortium. You can actually apply to a number of top-ranked business school programs through the consortium, and they decide who gets into those schools. And then there's a second conversation around who gets awarded a fellowship to actually go study for two years. And thankfully, Carnegie Mellon was my top choice because they were friendly to engineers looking to add that business layer. They accepted me, and then the consortium decided to give me a fellowship to go study. So the consortium made it very, very much an easy decision to go get that business acumen yeah. through the, the fellowship opportunity. So you were at Westinghouse for a good while, almost six years. After that, you ended up working for Nike doing process management, mostly from what I could tell from, you know, looking at your, your LinkedIn. Talk to me about that. Was that a big change kind of going to the, such a popular consumer brand from Westinghouse? Yeah, it was. So I started at Nike as a business planner, typical post MBA job. So what was great about that first role was that I got to really solidify that classroom business knowledge in the the real like high pressure dynamics of a public of a publicly traded company like a Nike and how it you know needed to navigate earnings releases, Wall Street calls and these kind of things and helping senior executives understand the clear like story around the objective financial and operational performance of the business. So that solidified that classroom knowledge in a, in a real meaningful way. But through that experience, though, I, I was a product guy at heart. And, you know, Nike being the collegial networking culture that it is, it was nothing to have coffee with someone and have them introduce you to more people that you might be curious about meeting. And so coffee chats led to more coffee chats. So I started meeting more and more product folks, folks that worked in you know, innovation departments across campus. And those coffee chats turned into actual invitations to actually help those organizations sort of as a side hustle, as a free stretch assignment to just show those product organizations I was I was really passionate about what they were doing, but I also had some skill sets that could be useful to them. And let's, let's see if there's a relationship to be had. So that was sort of the, the opportunity. And Following through on those conversations and actually, you know, volunteering to help some some of those product organizations, it made it easier to interview for jobs internally. And then eventually, after 18 months, I moved over to the product engine. I worked in a, a process management, sort of an ops job, looking at how we could help the product creation teams figure out better ways to perfect their craft as they created footwear and, and apparel and, and whatnot. And that brought me in front of real professional creatives for the first time in my career. And my creative curiosity was just lit ablaze seeing how, you know, Nike and the, the best product teams perfected their craft and and watching just shoes kind of dancing their way through the product creation process. It was quite just powerful to see. And the networking continued. I was much closer to that engine. And my newfound creative friends saw some of the work I was doing for hobby, the drawings and whatnot, and a few 
generous souls gave me some runway to actually flex my teeth on real Nike product under their mentorship. So the Jordan brand was one category that gave me a couple of shots to design shoes for them oh, under nice. the yeah, under the mentorship of Dwayne Edwards, who's now, you know, he's the founder of, of Pencil. Pencil. Yeah. But at the time he was the footwear design director of Jordan brand. And he had like, I don't know, over a billion in, in footwear sales to his design credits. So his, his pen was mighty yeah. <laughs> and to, to learn under Dwayne. Um, so I, you know, I would meet Dwayne in the early mornings. We would commiserate on the briefs that he didn't have enough designers for. And then we would go do our day jobs and I would work on Dwayne's assignment at night and we'd work that way for a better part of a year and, and launched two shoes. Um, and that door led to many other open doors during my time at Nike. Nice. That's nice. You got the design <laughs> shoe with the Dwayne Edwards. Wow. Yeah, wow. He's, he's a friend for life. I still call him a mentor to this day. He's, he's amazing. Tell him I want him to come on revision path. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll text him <laughs> right, right after this. I've wanted to talk to him for so long to have on the show. I had actually, so he did a reality show on YouTube a couple of years ago called Lace Up, the Ultimate Sneaker Challenge. And I had one of the contestants from the show on Revision Path. And I don't think she does shoe design anymore, but she was doing it at the time. And I got to, to have her on the show. So I would love to have him on the show. But no, that's great. I've heard so many good things, though, about... Black designers at Nike and the Jordan brand. I don't know if that was like intentional under like Dwayne's leadership or anything like that, but I've heard a lot about just uh, a lot of great design talent that has come out that has managed to sort of touch that brand, particularly within Nike. The weird thing about the Jordan brand is, is that it was a, a business that wasn't supposed to work. I mean, Michael Jordan was supposed to retire and they were supposed to sunset to other opportunities, but the staying power that Michael sort of implanted in the the scene of athletics, just not even just basketball, but beyond basketball, just the the energy, the ideal, the aspiration that represented Michael. I think the early authors of Jordan brand, I think emulated that similar DNA of leadership that made that that team just lean and mean. And I watched that team during my time at Nike do an enormous amount of business with very, you know, few people and and limited resources and have that same small team achieve a billion dollars in business with, you know, again, limited resources and just being a scrappy category and, and probably a category that was more willing to give me a shot perhaps than some of the other more established ones. There's a DNA there that works and it's a DNA that recognizes the power of, of black creativity and culture. Nice. So you worked for these pretty big names in the consumer space. You worked for Nike, you worked for Westinghouse and, you know, you got your MBA. And like you said, at first starting out at Nike was sort of this typical MBA job that sort of evolved into something else. From there, you ended up working for several like consulting firms. You worked for Axon, you worked for Booz Digital, you mentioned BCG earlier. Was that a big shift kind of going from such a big consumer industry to something that was, you know, just more like consulting? I have to backtrack a little bit. I think it's a great question, but something weird was happening with my path inside of Nike, but then also in the broader marketplace at large, thanks to the power of computation. So while I was super grateful to the Nike environment for affording me those opportunities, I mean, these are like life-changing opportunities, but I, I was approaching a fork in the road decision point where the shoe projects that I was getting 
were giving me a little bit of evidence to, to see the potential that creativity could have in my formal career path, but it didn't answer it fully. Like with full humility, like it just because I did a few sneakers, it didn't say, oh, okay, Kevin's ready to be a fully fledged footwear designer. Now, I could have chose to continue to stay in the Nike environment. It might have taken another 10 to 15 years before I would have gotten seasoned by their definition of what it takes. Or, you know, I could say, wow, the world is changing at the same time. If I look outside of Nike, I'm seeing the advent of like the, 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 the iPod and the iTunes ecosystem was just coming into view at that time. We were hearing previews about an iPhone that was coming. Like that was sort of like, and I was also seeing like business magazines celebrating designers on their covers for the first time. And the other path to take would be to actually go back to school. And mind you, I thought I was done with school. <laughs> you know, that, that okay, MBA, grad school done. But I started looking back into grad school again, and I actually made the difficult decision to leave my Nike job. And I went back to school for another two years. So, so I decided to move down to Los Angeles and flush out my creative foundation through an additional master's experience at Art Center College of Design. And my wife was at Nike as well. So she, she basically um, relocated down to, we relocated down to Pasadena, California. She continued to work for Nike for another year remotely while I was embarking on another two-year journey to get my master's of science in industrial design. So it was a very risky career gamble. And my, my wife and my son, who wasn't even one but when we quit our Nike jobs, uh, they're the true heroes because they were very supportive of, of that, that bold move. But it was a move based on like where I saw the future unfolding, like that the future was multidisciplinary. The future was involving greater commitments toward innovation and looking at design and innovation more holistically beyond just a, another app or another widget. And so that was sort of the calculated move. And, and the design schools were changing around that time to really embrace that, that notion of interdisciplinary collaboration on top of the design craft. As, as I was leaving Art Center, you know, I was finishing up the, the program. Of course, I'm consciously figuring out, okay, how do I get back into the workforce as fast as possible? This was a, a huge two-year sacrifice. But what was funny is that most of the organizations I talked to, they couldn't fit my hybrid persona into a singular job profile. So that was a difficult sort of set of messages navigating that. But one out of every 10 of those conversations did get it. They did want it. They did see that same future. And I met a small group of founding partners serendipitously in the Los Angeles area that had lived long 10 years at places like McKinsey. They also were in the executive hot seat for large departments of large global multinational corporates. And they knew all too well the perils that large organizations face when they pursue new growth opportunities. It's typically a waterfall process where a strategy firm would work with them for a while, then they would hand it over to, you know, a design firm like IDEO or Frog for a while. And then it would hit the idea would get handed off to a couple technological implementation firms. And so it might be two years before you see a prototype that you could actually test in market. Whereas when I met them serendipitously, the thesis was, well, why don't we just all work together around the table from day one, get to an integrated vision fast with said client and then just go build the business with them and for them as fast as possible. And we just started doing that for a couple of businesses, thus the, you know, the Axon reference. And then it, it snowballed into Booz & Company taking the first chance on us. So that was our first global platform. 
And so we ran under their their house as Booz Digital for about 11 months, but they got acquired by PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that wasn't necessarily the right fit for our, our little multidisciplinary incubator that we were creating, literally putting the wheels on the car as it's flying down the freeway. And then BCG was like, come on board. <laughs> we, we really like what you're doing. And we became BCG Digital Ventures inside their fold. And they really invested in us. We were working sort of the inverse of what you would think of, of a typical business consultant that was always on airplanes, traveling to client sites. We actually asked BCG, you know, hey, you got to invest in innovation studios for us. And what we want to have uh, you do is send your clients to live in residence with our designers, with our technologists, with our digital strategists. We'll ring fence these multidisciplinary teams. We'll give them like their own war space, their own sort of villages for head down work. And we'll let them run and create new businesses. And so that's what BCG did. They ended up, I think now they're up to like 11 studios globally where they literally house these, these businesses that are being created in residence. And then they will ultimately will spin out as either new businesses that plug into, as new business units that plug into the greater client mothership, or they'll become standalone ventures where you know, all the equity holders are sharing it in a joint venture sort of trajectory moving forward. Mm. Do you think that your career would have sort of taken this path had you not made that leap of faith from Nike? It surely wouldn't have. Yeah, I'm convinced it. I probably would have had an enjoyable trajectory, but it would not have looked like this. Uh, that's for sure. And now, of course, you're doing you know this sort of work now through your own imprints, through Dreams mm-hmm. Design and Life. So that's a good thing. And you haven't stopped there. Like you're still working on other innovations, even within your own studio. I mean, I know we we spoke a little bit before we recorded about Kivo. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So um, Kivo was one of the first projects when I stepped away from BCG. Some startup friends in the the Bay Area basically said, hey, we want to look at this emerging space around these these weird like little crypto hardware wallets. And basically, if you're familiar with blockchain or distributed ledger sort of technologies, anytime that we, you or I decide to invest in something like Bitcoin or some of the other coins that are popular, if we engage in an online or a mobile first app marketplace to buy and trade those cryptocurrencies, we're sort of we're giving we're handing over our identity and our keys to be able to make those transactions to that marketplace. And what's been happening in this nation space of cryptocurrency trading is that it's vulnerable to hacks or if someone amasses a large amount of, of coin and you can see the prices of Bitcoin lately, that could amount to a, a very enormous amount of wealth that either gets hacked or if someone passes away, unfortunately, their loved ones can't access those funds because they might not have the password. I mean, it could be that insane, you know, that the conveniences that we know from typical savings and investment accounts, like those same consumer friendly affordances aren't available to folks in the cryptocurrency space. So, you know, there's been a few physical hardware wallets that allow you to basically record your transactions, but then unplug your device, which has a record of the ledger on it and your own identity and keys on it. So as soon as you unplug from your computer, you basically have a physical record. And as soon as you plug back in, you can transact, you unplug, you're sort of protected. There's like a wall of air-gapped security from you and the marketplace and from being prone to those hacks and those 
problems. But the problem is those physical hardware wallets that are on the market now, there's a ton of manual gymnastics that you have to go through to protect yourself. So we basically said, let's design a better mousetrap, a better device, and also surround that device that we've created with additional services that feel like you maintaining a, a security safe deposit box at your at your local bank. It can be that easy. And also let's get rid of the manual like exercises that you need to do to to even transact. So we're we're taking a lot of those things away by creating a better device that embodies like more biometrics and more layers of security than what you had before with some of the other choices. And so my contribution to that team was to basically derive the industrial design of the form factor of the device itself. And I continue to serve as a co-founder and investor in that business. Yeah, I know that there's been a lot of talk recently around, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain. I feel like that's been a, a conversation actually for a few years now. And I, I don't know if, if it's still something that the general layperson can kind of wrap their head around. But I think seeing something physical like this, you know, like Kivo is a start, you know. Absolutely. It can very easily get lost in the abstraction, just the whole environment. And there's so much future potential beyond even just the trading of cryptocurrencies. I'm I'm personally excited about the applications that you could build on distributed ledger uh, technologies, whether it being uh, being able to maintain medical records and, and not losing like your son's immunization records <laughs> between moves and these kind of things, or not being able to like reveal your identity if you want to get into a, a particular space. The blockchain would know it's you without you having to like articulate to someone at the desk that it's you. Like these these things are part of the feature that is coming that get me excited. But yeah, we do need some sort of like real anchors for people to better understand these use cases. And hopefully, you know, Kivo can be an exemplar for people as we move forward. Yeah, because currency for, you know, a long time has still been something that is I think been associated with a physical object of some <laughs> sort, a wallet, a coin, a bill, that kind of thing. Those phrases are still used within Bitcoin and everything because it's currency. But when you start adding, I think the blockchain on top of that, or as part of that conversation, that's sort of where people are like, okay, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I completely understand. I remember the last time I was in, in Austin, which was, 2015 for South by I went to a restaurant there and they had a Bitcoin ATM and I was like how would I use this like do I put my debit card in here I, it still was a little <laughs> kind of confusing so there's I mean there's there's ways to go but it's good that you know you're working with a company that's thinking about ways to kind of make this happen so so that's a good mm -hmm. thing and on top of all this you're also writing a book <laughs> yes, sir. It's, um, <laughs> it's been a blessed, cathartic and magical journey with, with the book project. Thankfully, the MIT Press bit on the proposal that I had floating around. And based on some nudges from some helpful mentors, the proposal on the contract became real at the start of the pandemic. So I think through the quietness of some of those pandemic weeks, I was able to, you know, furiously write and get a lot of the thoughts that have been percolating through all these different multidisciplinary experiences. It was a cathartic process to get some of that out on paper for the first time and structure a perspective that I could call, you know, a product of the the lived experiences that I've been blessed and grateful to have enjoyed. And, and if my experiences can help someone else think about 
their career or even their place within a future enterprise, especially an enterprise that has to think more multidisciplinary in the future. I want to be a help to that. And you finished writing the book now. I think that's what you told me earlier, right? That's correct. I, I just sent in the final manuscript. So MIT Press has a rigorous peer review process. So my manuscript was sent out in the fall months and we got some pointed constructive feedback from objective reviewers. And so I had, I had a rewrite, an aggressive rewrite to do in the early weeks of December. So just handed it off and it will take MIT Press another you know 12 months to go through their process of, of taking it from a package to a launchable product. Oh, wow. That is yeah. pretty thorough. <laughs> so yeah, we've got another 12 months here to wait, but it'll be worth it when it comes out. Yeah. What drives you to do all of this? <laughs> I think curiosity, if I look back at all these different chapters, curiosity has been the defining thread through all of it. And honestly, there were times where I didn't act on my curiosity as aggressively as I should have. Because things might have happened sooner for me if I if I took those chances. But I think thanks to the, and I'm definitely a product of my my community, right? Uh, mentors, pioneers doing similar things ahead of me, looking up to them. And with any adversity that I might have encountered as, especially as a black man navigating STEM in the early career and then leading into high circles of business influence, you know, there was tons of resistance and pushback, of course, but. Still, for out, out of every you know nine to ten people that maybe didn't see me playing in their world, one out of ten did. They would open a door for me, and I think curiosity, emboldening some convictions to want to like actually experiment on those curiosities, and an experiment might be a side hustle or an investigation or a phone call or a coffee chat. Like that leads to something, and it leads to creating more evidence that you can actually hold up. Not only for others to see, but for yourself to feel like you can actually step forward with confidence and credibility. So curiosity is still what gives me energy. Like there's tons of things that I still want to chase and, and, and learn and, and figure out how to do and how to master. So I think that's going to keep my, hopefully my runway as long as possible. <laughs> and I mean, I've seen you've even given a TED talk, like a legit talk at the TED conference <laughs> around design. So, I mean... Clearly, this is something that it, it drives you. It's very, you're very passionate about it. So when you look at kind of where you're at right now, like right now we're recording this for people that are listening. We're recording this actually on New Year's Eve. What is the most dominant emotion in your life right now? I think it's gratitude. But I think with that, there is a that comes with an imperative or a, a responsibility. So as we've talked about before, the, the path has been very unique. I, I never would have predicted things playing out the way that they did. But with that, I feel a deep sense of responsibility that comes with that gratitude to want to move the needle for organizations. I, I want them to see things through, a, again, a, a wider aperture, a more open aperture. But I also think that as I deal with more and more enterprise leaders, startups, that we can no longer just think about business design and tech in isolation, like that's not enough anymore. Like, of, of course, the future is multidisciplinary, sure. But we can no longer think of that as enough. Like we have to think about every decision that we make in a business context has deeper ramifications. We see that now, like 2020 showed us a lot of that, you know, impact on employees, ethics, especially data ethics and privacy, 
the impact on the growing and ongoing pandemic of climate change and, and with the heightened awareness around societal imbalance, like all these things are hyper-connected. And we need to now appreciate how deep and how far back those threads of systemic imbalance go. And all of that informs every institution, every enterprise that we navigate. And if, you know, as future business leaders, leaders of institutions, governments, enterprises, we have to think about these things in a holistic way and, and know that the forces are converged paradigms that we need to treat not in isolation, but, but together. And if I can be a, a voice to get people to wake up and see these emerging realities, like I definitely want to do all that I can to do that. What advice would you would you give to someone that is kind of listening to this? They're looking at your work. They're seeing what you do around, you know, strategic design, et cetera. What advice would you give for someone that's listening to all that and they want to basically follow in your footsteps? What would you tell them? I, I definitely wouldn't recommend that they do exactly what I did because <laughs> some of those inflection points were quite painful, I, you know, and I don't believe in having someone replicate the same steps. What I do hope is that people find the path that's right for them. But I will say a couple things of what someone might think about. The first is creativity can be for you. Like you don't have to just be the designer listening to, to think that, you know, the power of what we talked about in this podcast is for you. Creativity is for you. Whether you're an engineer, business person, designer, a student, you know, you could partake, you could participate in the creative process. And there are things that you can do to stoke your creative fire. Your, and I think that stems, that stems from curiosity. Like look up. Every now and then you got to look up and see like what's happening in the world that's outside of your immediate purview and find inspiration in that. Go find out more, like whatever excites you, go invest in that curiosity and start making those natural creative sparks and connections between things in your immediate view, as well as things that are sort of, you know, above the horizon and, and, and ahead of you. Bring that into your everyday business challenge. Bring that into your curiosity as you're navigating your education in the collegial environment, bring it into your government work. Like the, all these things are hyper-connected. So invest in your curiosity and know that creativity can be for you. And then I think the other thing that I'll say is that when we think about the future career path, I think the days of, of the stepping stone progression are over. Like feeling like you have to go, let's say, get an MBA because you think you need that piece of paper to get validated. Like, no, you should go pursue an MBA because you think that education is actually going to empower the path that you want to take based on your curiosity. Like that should be the reason that you go. You truly believe that investment is going to empower you. I do think that a lot of us, because we are going to deal with a more multidisciplinary, diverse reality ahead of us, we have to think about our, our career in terms of, I believe, breadth and depth. People could call it T-shaped. People could call it pie-shaped. But Breadth and depth for me, I interpret it as such. Breadth is sort of like knowing that you're going to be in rooms with more diverse people, different backgrounds, different lived experiences. Like how are you equipped and uniquely equipped to collaborate and communicate with people that are different from you? Because you're going to find yourself in those situations more and more. And so how do you communicate? How do you align? How do you collaborate strategically with those people and that are different from you? And then we still need you, whether you're a designer, engineer, business person, we still need you to deliver your depth of subject matter expertise. So can you still like can we still hang our hat on your ability to deliver 
ensure that your craft, your competence, your capability is excellent, it's world-class, that you can actually stand on your own two feet in those regards. We still need that depth of expertise from people. So that's how I think about, like, anytime I give advice to, you know, mentees or young people, is think about your career from a breadth and depth perspective. How do you want to build out, like, the unique adjectives that define your breadth and depth as you enter the next organization, as you look for new experiences, as you look to ideally map yourself to a future vision that you have of yourself. Now, you mentioned earlier your son. You have an 11-year-old son, you said? Correct. 11-year-old son. Does he see the work you do? Like, does he see, like, what dad is doing and, and like, wants to follow in that? Like, do you see a design spark in him or anything like that? I do see. <laughs> he does come down to my home studio office. He does sort of ask questions. He likes to pick up some of the cool things that I'm messing with. He loves computers. I know that about him already. He loves to draw. So I suspect either engineering or design for him for sure, because he, he, he loves to build by nature. He loves to create things by nature. And I think he's inspired by the, the work that he sees from my office. Are you kind of like subtly pushing him into that? Like- <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think my wife and I are just like exposing him to as much as we can and seeing what sticks. Like he, he loves music. He loves computers. He loves video games, of course, like most kids nowadays. And, you know, we're just trying to like nudge him a little bit to say, you know what, if you, if you really like that area, at least, you know, maybe we can do a class for you and see how you like that. But we are trying to plant seeds that he will have to appreciate that it's going to take hard work to, you know, master some of the skills that he's curious about. And we just want to like prepare him for that proper mindset to have. And that's a good age too. You know, I mean, that's what I think that's like around fourth, fifth grade, something like that. Fifth grade. Yep. Yeah. That's a good age. You, you kind of start really seeing what it is that you are interested in that what, you know, what you want to continue with. And I would imagine even now, especially because of the pandemic and with different school closures and stuff, you probably have more of a unique opportunity to, you know, even guide or, you know, show in some sort of way different possibilities that maybe, you know, he wouldn't have gotten in school. Totally. I mean, one example, like we talk so much about what has been taken away from us, but there are things to be gained through this awkward period that we're in. And one example, you could take art center classes, extension classes, but you had to like drive way across town in Los Angeles, which is like perhaps an hour and a half to two hour commute at times to put him into a an extension class around drawing or illustration or whatever it might be. But with the pandemic, they made all those offerings remote. <laughs> so now we could easily take those classes. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's 2026. We've got the vaccine available at Starbucks. You know, <laughs> where, where do you see yourself? What kind of work do you want to be doing? <laughs> Two extra shots of vaccine, please. Yeah. <laughs> I ordered a grande. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate you asking. I've been thinking a lot about it, especially during these holiday periods that we find ourselves in. I look at Dreams Design and I I look at Dreams Design and Life as more than an agency. I do want to achieve and realize different facets of the ecosystem that is the business. You know, I do still want to, of course, offer services to organizations of the strategic design and industrial design ilk of work. But I also, I do see a future where I'm continuing to write hopefully more books, speaking more on some of these hot topics that can affect 
people and, and ideally inspire them to think about their careers and their place in organizations differently. I do want to create products under the Dreams Design and Life umbrella that represent the highest ideals of what I think could manifest as as design artifacts that show like what is possible, right? And have some products that live under the umbrella or at least license product ideas and IP to organizations. So just having a flexible platform that that affords opportunities for more people to join, but also affords the business some flexibility to entertain opportunities that fit our convictions and be able able to like enjoy that license of choice and not feel like always under the burden of of keeping the lights on and, and collecting fees purely from the services play. Yeah. And honestly, once you get that five year mark in business, like I don't want to say you're set, but you certainly have like a good sort of beacon as to sort of where you want the business to go and the kind of things that you want to do. So I see that happening. I definitely see that happening. I appreciate you. <laughs> well, you know, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you, about your work and everything? Where can they follow you online? Sure. So they're welcome to come to our website at dreamsdesignandlife.com. Or you can easily find me on Twitter and Instagram by the handle at Kevin Bethune, all one word, just like it sounds, Kevin Bethune. And then from there, you'll find the tentacles to all the Dreams Design and Life properties on social and all the other properties that I have as an individual. But I'm, I'm easy to find and welcome anyone to, to reach out. Sounds good. Well, Kevin Bethune, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for, I think, putting words behind a lot of kind of abstract concepts around strategic design and really giving a good glimpse into the type of work you do and the process behind it, you know, and I know we've mentioned the pandemic a few times during this interview, probably more than I wanted to, because we get feedback from listeners and they're like, we don't always want to hear about the pandemic, but we're in <laughs> it. And the reality is that many industries and many sorts of normal ways of life are changing and still changing because of that. And so it's people like you that are able to kind of forecast in some sort of way where we can go and what this new world is going to look like. And certainly I think through your studio, we'll be able to, to chart that course together. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Maurice. Appreciate the honor. It's an honor to be on your platform. Thank you. Big, big thanks to Kevin Bethune. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kevin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? What do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. The best way for me to find out how you feel about the show is to let me know directly. So hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or even better, leave a rating and a review, five stars, on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show. It really helps us grow. It helps us reach more people around the world. I mean, we've been doing this now for almost eight years. That is a lifetime in podcasting. So the best way 
that you can show your appreciation for the show, show your love for the show. Let us know on social media and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.